gay robot assistant. Gay robot and... assistant. You gotta love that one. It's I do AC and DC. Radio Drone. Welcome to the last episode of Radio Drone being recorded before the end of the new year, even though you're going to hear this after 2017. So Cecil and Peter are off because of the whole we're recording this between Christmas and New Year's. I got Fred to step in because it's a good topic and you guys seem to like him for some unbegotten reason. Slackers. The slackers. That's probably why. You are the minister of slack. Well, if you guys want to do more than Slack, what you do is you go to adamandeve.com. You use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free Power O-Ring, and free U.S. shipping, all for just using the code DROME at adamandeve.com. All right, what we're going to talk about tonight are movies that are in development hell. This is not, even though some there's going to be some titles that cross over, this is not a remake of... The episode, The Best Movies Never Made, that Cecil, Alex, and I did about a year, about two years ago or so. This is not a remake of that. We're going to look at novels, comic books, or even just original screenplays that just keep getting greenlit, and then it doesn't happen, and then it gets greenlit, and it doesn't happen, or it gets greenlit, and it's totally different than what the script or the original idea or the original director or something was. These movies that we're probably never going to see for one reason or another that keep trying to get made. So, Fred, along those lines, what would be your kind of go-to? What what movie do you need in your lifetime to actually get made that they keep teasing you with? Well, uh, since you, you've worded it that way, I'll save the one I was going to start with down a couple, maybe, and start with I really long to see the Fletch novels brought to the screen properly. It's not to say the Chevy Chase novels, uh, of films aren't bad, because they're not. They're both very enjoyable. The first one's pretty close to the, the book. Not identical, but pretty close. Fletch Lives, not even close. It's not even based off of one of the books. I would love to see in this world where sequels are so big right now, cinematic universes, I want a Fletch cinematic universe, and I want him right out of the novels. Do you think that when Kevin Smith was trying to make Fletch 1, do you think he would have given you what you kind of wanted, or do you think he would have gone off in his own Kevin Smithy direction? Here's the funny thing. This is the one of the few times I was not bothered by the director or casting choice, because it was supposed to be... Uh, oh, no, I forgot his name. Jason Lee was going to play Fletch. and I totally uh, could have seen that. I totally could. Especially, he had not done My Name is Earl yet, and this is why it didn't happen. And they only saw him as the skater dude from Mallrats. Uh, Brody, I think, was the character's name. And essentially, that's all Hollywood saw. And, of course, later on, he did... My name is Earl, and they were like, oh, wow, this guy actually can act. He's got, he's got range in that. He has range. He's verbally verbose, which, guess what? Erwin Fletch is, Fletcher, Erwin Fletcher is very verbally verbose. He's very dry, and he's not like Chevy Chase. He's more sardonic. Okay, if you know who the actor Dean Winters is, when Dean Winters was a little younger, I think Dean Winters would have been the perfect Fletch. 
it won't be. And now Jason Lee is too old to play Fletch in Fletch 1. Because for those that don't know, Fletch 1 is Fletch W-O-N, was uh, Gregory Wyden going back in time before the Fletch novels to write Fletch's first adventure. And this is one of the few times as a prequel... It was wonderful. It was a great book. It's one of my favorite books. Then he wrote another one called Fletch 2, T-O-O. I hope we never see that one. <laughs> it's not horrifically bad, but it's one of those that strays so far from the formula, it just doesn't work kind of things. You see what he was going for, it just kind of failed. But I would love for them to start with Fletch 1 and then go into Fletch and then the rest of the series, because he gets older as the books go along, and Fletch's career changes. For instance, he doesn't work for the same newspaper throughout the whole series of novels. So it would be wonderful to see this series adapted properly. You sign somebody up for, like, six movies and grow with them. I, I would love to see it. And yes, Kevin Smith would have been fine, because words are his strong suit. Telling stories verbally are his strong suit. The Fletch stories aren't really about the plot as much as they are the characters, the dialogue, the the, the repartee. It's almost like a throwback to, if, you, if you're familiar with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn movies, that kind of back, quick repartee. It's more like that, not as old-fashioned as that, but it's that kind of rapid-fire tone. And see, okay, you mentioned Gregory Wyden. I might as well go with one of my choices, was Gregory Wyden, back in the 90s, was set to adapt Harlan Ellison's Mephisto in Onyx to a movie. The main character is a black guy in his mid-30s. Samuel L. Jackson was cast at that point. And it was all set to go. Something fell through. Then it was all set to go in 1998, and something fell through. And then in 2001, and something fell through. And this movie has been greenlit like nine times. And now, of course, Samuel L. Jackson is way too old to play Rudy, so they'd have to get a younger actor now. Harlan Ellison's Mephisto and Onyx is one of the most clever, innovative novellas I've ever read, and I think if done properly, ironically enough, I think you could actually make this movie better now than you could have in the 90s, because there are certain special effects things that are required in the novel would have probably looked very What Dreams May Come-ish if it were done in the 90s. I actually think you could make Nefesto and Onyx look better now, but this movie's never going to happen. An another one we're most likely never going to see is William Gibson's Neuromancer. Yes. Neuromancer, if you've ever read the book, this is the first sprawl novel. All of William Gibson's stuff take place in the same continuity called The Sprawl. It's, it's ironic he got Johnny Mnemonic made, even though that movie is way different than the short story. Although, in all honesty, I like the movie of Johnny Mnemonic better than the short, but whatever. It's fun. It's fun. And the, the the short is a little self-serious, honestly. Mm -hmm. you know, the, I read the, it after I saw the movie, and I agree completely. It was like, hey, where's all the fun? Yeah, the, 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 the short story is a little self-serious, but his first book, Neuromancer, has been announced again and again and again. In 2003, they were going to make it, and then it didn't happen. Then in 2007, and then in 2010, and then in 2012, and then in 2013, and then in 2015. This movie keeps getting greenlit. It keeps jumping from company to company. At, like, at one point, Paramount had it, at another Sony, at another Fox, at another Warner Brothers. So this thing just keeps jumping from company to company to company to company. They greenlight it, and then something happens, and Neuromancer, I'm just afraid this movie is never going to come out. It's just not going to happen. The last time it got greenlit, I was not happy with certain things that they announced. I mean, yes, in 2007, Mila Jovovich was going to play the Molly character. Not too keen on that. She's totally wrong for that part. The last time it was announced was Hayden Christensen was going to be the main character, Cage. 
And if people are going, wait, I've read Neuromancer, there's no character named Cage, his name is Case. They changed it for the screenplay because Cage sounds like a, quote, quoting Hayden Christensen, more badass name than Case. You know what? If you're going to do it like that, I just don't want you to do it. I, I, well, I always thought they took the name thing too seriously. You know, in uh, the Secret of Nim book, it was Miss Frisbee, and they changed it to Brisbee. And it's like, that's a kid's story. Why are you worrying about changing a name like that? The movie does, or the book does have major action sequences in it. But it seemed, from what I was understanding from Hayden Christensen's interview, they were making this into an action movie. Mm-hmm. instead of the instead of the character drama that the book is and then you also got to wonder the Molly character who really owns her because if you guys have ever seen Johnny Mnemonic the Jane character is actually the character of Molly from Neuromancer. She she appears in multiple William Gibson stories, but there were rights issues because the people who owned Neuromancer had the rights to her character as a Razor Girl, so they had to, even though her character still does the same things that she does in the Johnny Mnemonic movie, they couldn't call her Molly, so she was Jane. So you kind of like, okay, just this becomes a rights nightmare after a while, doesn't it? Yeah, plus I this is a classic case of it took too long also. I think that's... This is more of a clear case of that. I, I think we've kind of shot past the headcase movies and, uh, unfortunately, the cyberpunk era. You know, we've gone through Matrix, the 13th Floor. There's some TV shows dealing in this right now. Was it Black Mirror? It might have just been, we, we might have missed that that sweet spot for the release of that one. Since when has that ever stopped Hollywood? No, I, I, I'm not going to say it won't happen either. I'm just saying that it it's lost its shine. You know, or Sheen. It, it, it's not quite that bright and shining star anymore. It was something special when we were growing up. That's everybody wanted to see that adapted. I, I remember I told you about this. Like I remember like Starlog talking about the movie, the movie, movie being adapted, being adapted, and it just this was for years, just endlessly. And I, I just feel like we've passed it. My bet is if we ever see it adapted, here's my bet: we're going to see it on a Netflix or an Amazon or one of those cable television networks you know you won't see this as a major motion picture in the theaters or a regular tv show i think you're going to see it as a made for cable type thing you brought up the whole it's time has passed do you think that kind of works in reverse as well that real world events are going to stop certain adaptations like i love 1987's the running man i think it's a great movie it's satirical it's funny it's a great action film it's got great characters but it strays really, really far from the Richard Bachman, Stephen King book. They've been trying for years talking about adapting the book properly. I think in a post-9-11 world, that book cannot be adapted. I think 9-11 killed any chance of the Running Man book ever being adapted. Spoiler, the ending of the book has our hero strapping explosives to himself, hijacking a 747 and flying it into the twin towers of the game building while giving the middle finger to Killian on a video screen. Post 9-11, that ending's never going to show up in a movie, is it? I'm going to say probably not. There's always that chance that somebody rebelliously will do it anyway, and the movie will be torn to shreds because of it, if it did. So I think the safe bet is... No, they might adapt the rest of it up to that point and then just call it quits. I mean, you've read The Running Man. 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't wouldn't you want an accurate adaptation? Because I know you love the '87 movie. It's just that's not the book, is it? No, no. Uh, we, again, we've talked about this before. That I, I look at the Running Man as more of a satire. The movie. I'm referring to the movie here as a satire on American television and the game show and the need for upping violence. Whereas if you read the book, it's grittier. Or the short story, actually, is part of the Bachman books. If you read that, it's a grittier, darker uh, story and. It really it's is. Much it's much more it's, cynical. It's very cynical. It, this might be a bad comparison, but it's sort of like comparing the old 1950s The Thing versus John Carpenter's The Thing. Like, they're both really good, but they're very different animals. I, I, I would say the same thing with 1984, the 1956 version and the 1984 version. The 1984 one is much more cynical and mean, mm-hmm. but it's also more accurate to the book, too. Well, the Bachman books in general are mean. They really are. They're all dark and they're in fact a lot of those stories you couldn't do today because one of them even deals in a kid walking into school and shooting his classmates Rage. so yep you so you there's a lot in that uh collection you couldn't do today so i i would say it's a safe bet we'll never see that or a lot of the stories from that particular collection uh, obviously i've already said fletch so i think most people who listen know uh, my affinity for detective stories and there's a book called the last good kiss by james crumley uh this was recommended to me by none other than tim thomerson he has a lot of time to read <laughs> between setups and he told me it was one of the best stories he ever read in the genre and i'll tell you what he was absolutely right this is a fantastic book it's it's one again it's another story that's not so much the story itself, most detective stories really aren't. You can't describe most detective stories in a sentence. And this is that type of story because it's one event leading to another event. But the poetry of the language of this novel is fantastic. It it really is a uh, erudite, uh, how do I want to say this, uh, poetic I'm trying to think of the right word. Lyrical use of words, I guess, is what I'm going for. And this has been, they've been trying to get this book to the screen forever. It just because, and the reason I'm bringing up the about how intelligent it is and the, the flowery, not flowery language, but just the a- exceptional poetic use of language in this book, that's what I think will destroy any chance it has of becoming a great movie. Because it really is in the wording that makes the novel so beautiful. And you'd have to find a way to put a lot of those sentences that Crumley is writing into the detective's mouth mostly told through the character, so you could do it. But my point is, I just don't think it's going to work, which is probably why it's been listed as a movie in development. If you go to the IMDb page, it's there, and it says 2017. No names attached to it. And every year, it changes. So, you know, it's 2014, 2015, now it's 2017 it's listed for. I just don't think we're ever going to see it, and we probably won't. character of uh, Shugru... I always have trouble pronouncing his name, is basically a character that's appeared in several several of Crumley's novels, and Crumley's never had success. Like, he's never had... This book is revered. He actually taught in universities because of his literature, and yet none of his books have become what you'd call smash hits. And he even wrote uh, screenplays that went unproduced, uh, some screenplay work, uh, rewrites, and one of them was none other than the Judge Dredd that went on to become infamous Stallone version, but he, none of what he wrote ended up in it. The guy's just had one of those cursed careers. He's gone now. He's no longer with us. 
I got a feeling we're just never going to see one of his works adapted. And of the works, The Last Good Kiss is just a must. And if you love, if you love detective fiction, you've got to read this book. Okay, what about then movies that we should probably be thankful never come out for whatever reason? Such as the live-action Jetsons movie that's been greenlit 12 times now and never come out. Are we probably better off that there's not a live-action Jetsons movie? That's always such a hard question. I'm going to say the off-the-cuff answer is yes. It, it, it's that thought in the back of my head, maybe someone could do something amazing with it. I, I, I never like to say never when it comes to stories. Before, when I heard of the Brady Bunch movie, I just went, you're kidding me. You know, how long ago was that? I saw the movie and went, hey, this is really funny. So, I don't know is my answer ultimately, but I, I have a feeling given the imagery, like are you going to do their flying cars exactly how they looked? Are you going to have the outfits exactly how they looked? Is the tone of the characters going to be exactly from the show? I don't see a literal adaption ever happening or being successful, honestly. This all started in 1984 where Paramount was going to make it, and then it was moved to 1985, and then 1989, and then 1991, and eventually they released the Jetsons movie, an animated movie in 1990, which had been completed in the 80s. And then in 2007, Robert Rodriguez was going to make it. And then he was kicked off the project after two years of hell in 2009 when it never came out. Then it was supposed to come out again in 2012. Then it was announced in 2013. And then now it's been announced again for 2015, which obviously is the past. I just think we're better off for not having a live-action Jetsons movie. The Flintstones live-action movie was garbage, but it looked right. It looked like a Flintstones movie. I don't know. Like you said, even if they did everything exactly, I, I don't know. Th that's one of those things. I mean, Hanna-Barbera being moved into live-action has not had a lot of success, has it? No, and it's got, you'd have to do like that future retro. That always seems to work better in animation. Look at uh, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. And that looks beautiful, and they have that future retro look, and it works great. But to, to do that live action would look just weird. How about sequels that probably better off having not happened, like Beverly Hills Cop 4, or as it was being called then, London Hills Cop, which makes no sense. But after this was, this was greenlit before Beverly Hills Cop 3 came out and bombed. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be something happens, Axel Foley has to get sent over to London and work with a London, a grizzled London cop from Scotland Yard, which would be played at that time. It was Sean Connery was cast in the role. And it would be just, ha, ha, look at that, Beverly Hills and London, they don't get along. There's different cultures. It, it's probably a good thing London Hills Cop never happened, huh? Yeah, plus this one's kind of infamous also. I believe the London thing actually started as a sequel to Running Scared, the Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines movie, because they were going to do a sequel to that, and it was set in London. And then for whatever reason, it never happened. And then the and next it thing into I heard, Axel Foley. then it, yeah, the next thing I heard was suddenly Axel Foley's going to be in London. And I went, you, you readapted that, didn't you? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard of that popping up. Well, I'd say, and then on the topic of sequels, we, we can't disregard Ghostbusters 3. Not counting Girlbusters from earlier this year. They've been, they've announced Ghostbusters 3, what, two dozen times since 1990, maybe? I, I can remember since Ghostbusters 2 came out, them talking about 3. 
I, I get it for the time period. Dan Aykroyd's script was probably too ambitious. Cause I, I think they said with how much ghosts and an alternate world and it's set in like a dystopian future where ghosts are the norm and the sky is always blood red. I think I read something in like the mid nineties in Starlog or Fangoria that they said, and gotta remember at this time, a hundred million dollars was unheard of that his script would have been a hundred million dollar movie. So mm-hmm. his Ghostbusters 3 probably was too ambitious. Nothing that they were going to do for Ghostbusters three would have been as bad as Girlbusters. I again, the the we don't know what the movie would or would not have been. Ghostbusters two is not a bad movie, but it's not a great movie. It's an okay movie. But uh, Girlbusters they, is they, a terrible movie. Well, I don't think I don't hate it as much as you do. I just think it's it's a flat, lifeless, dull movie. That's how I pretty much describe it to everybody. It's not the worst thing I've ever sat through. Heaven knows. Sitting through any of those Transformers sequels would qualify for that, or Twilight even. I can't stand Twilight. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. When you compare all these wonderful things they had to play with, and you look at the movie and you go, how did you get it so wrong? That's why I think there's so much uh, anger towards it. It's You just look at this and you go, wow, a 16-year-old kid could have written a better script than this. And that's the problem. Ghostbusters 3, which was... A very, I, I understand most of that's in the video game. I don't know if that's true. I never read the script. For years it was called Ghostbusters Go to Hell, but the alternate world was the idea. Like we're talking about the alternate world where everything is go, that was supposed to be like where we got hell from, from what I understand. So it's, it was a lot of ideas that I think the producers were scared of for that time period. But as far as what we would have gotten versus what we did get, I don't know. I just don't know. I I know this film was the worst direction they could have gone in. It feels angry. It feels angry at the fans. It feels angry at the franchise. And I mean, it's in the movie. We're not talking about things people said outside the movie. That's a whole other controversy. We're talking about the movie itself. And it seems to hate Ghostbusters. It seems to hate the world. And it seems to hate its fans. I can't imagine a dumber approach to making a movie. Well, this is where I I think I'm going to go. Well, there's a couple I could go with here. But there's some stuff I would love to see from Japan if I could bring it up here. One of which may have been optioned in America, but now I can no longer find information about it. One of the titles I would love to see brought to the screen. I think it would be fun. I think it would be a just a good time is, well, it's known over here as the anime The Dirty Pair. I can't tell you how much I love The Dirty Pair. Anime, the series, the OVAs, even a few of the movies, is just so much fun. These two characters who are called the Lovely Agent, uh, Lovely Angels, they work for a corporation. It's like, imagine sort of a James Bond kind of thing, but pretty much nothing secret at all. These girls are so destructive that uh, they've earned the nickname the Dirty Pair behind their back, and they absolutely hate this name. This is all I can say about it. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I don't think I could describe it properly. I've seen the anime, so I know I mean, this was back in the 90s. So just off memories, I know ballpark where you're coming from. I'm not. I wasn't a big fan of it, but if you are, then that's a fair choice. Well, it, there's so much to it too, because as I said, there's a television series. There's an OVA. There are movies of which the movies are in quality up and down. So there's that's what makes it tricky. And there's also the original novel this is all based off of, which I've read that as well. I love these characters. They would be so much fun. It would be tricky. And this is also a thing I don't think will happen. 
essentially the rumor was Patton Oswalt bought it and he was going to adapt it. And I'll tell you the truth. I can see him playing their captain. Okay. You know, the very beleaguered, oh no, not them kind of character. So my bet is if he did buy it or if he really was ever attached to it, that's it. My fear, however, is that they might have been talking about the Adam Warren dirty pair. And if you're familiar with those, they suck. I'm sorry if you're a fan of Adam Warren's American The Dirty Pair comics. I am not. I hate them. I think they represent, whenever you hear about the European view of American anything, you know, uh, fat, loud, all they care about is explosions, their humor is obvious. To me, Adam Warren, Warren's version of The Dirty Pair is that. It's I can't stand, they made Kay and Yuri characters I don't like, whereas in the original book and the original series, even in the movies, they're likable. You like them. You care about them. That's what makes them fun. I can't stand the Adam Warren version, and I fear if we did get an American version, that's what we would get. And well, that's why I don't think we'll ever see that version. Speaking of anime, are you an Akira fan? Can I say I was? <laughs> They've been trying to make a live-action Akira movie for so... They keep announcing dates, they keep announcing leads, and every year or two they announce a new live-action Akira cast, and it falls through, and then a, a new director, and it falls through. This is one, just leave it alone, guys. Akira does not need to be live-action, and especially with how they want to just neuter everything. The last time it was announced, it would have a multicultural cast. His gang would be made up of, you know, a black guy, an Asian guy, a Chinese guy, a, a Jewish person, you know, to appeal to everybody, and they were aiming for a PG-13. No. It's like, no, just no. leave it alone. Do not make Akira into live action. Leave it alone. Here's the thing about Akira also, and I think this is pretty widely known now, but if it's not, real short, the movie, the animated movie, is not the actual story. It's, it's about a quarter of it because it, Otomo well, was still writing the, he was still changed. writing the books. Well yeah, he was still writing the books and they had to change the, the ending completely. So the ending is very different from either adaption. But yeah, they hadn't completed it. It's, it's a sprawling story. I'm not sure you could do it in three movies, but I can tell you this, you'd have to have a minimum of three movies to even come close to doing this properly. I don't think they can. I, I, that's the thing about a lot of animes. Uh, they always seem to want to adapt the animes. Isn't the manga, isn't the manga like 5,000 pages or something like that? Well, if you have a, if you know what a phone book looks like this generation, imagine eight phone books stacked on top of each other. Yeah, it's gargantuan. It's, uh, when I finally saw them in a, in a comic book shop, I was actually in shock. I, I, I was just like, oh my gosh. So no, you, you can't just do a simple condensed adaption. You would have to invest. Again, I think if you were going to try this, you would need real money behind it, first of all. Second of all, I think a series is a better approach here. Again, for an Amazon, Netflix, A&E, somebody that will do it with a little more heart and integrity. There's so much in this story that deals with belief systems and... Uh, Corruption gosh. of both well, the soul and of the uh, physical. Yes, there's a lot of musings. Uh, there's a lot of meditations on who we are as a people. That's why you have this conflict between the young people and the older people. And everybody I've ever talked to says, oh, because the young people are the heroes. Not really. Also PG-13. No. This is a super violent story, and it needs to be. Tetsuo has a harem of women that he's given 
as sex slaves. Yeah. He literally uses them up. Yeah, he uses them up, and the one girl in the uh, in the uh, movie Cowry. portrayed as his love interest is just one that he basically has stronger feelings for, and despite being his sex slave, she begins to develop feelings for him. It obviously a very complex and kind of intriguing idea, but you know you'll never see that. You know you will not. That's not what they're going to do, and if they did, PG-13, no way. No way. And we're not even touching the gore. What about, like, remakes, though? What about remakes that were supposed to happen and could have been interesting, but for whatever reason didn't? For instance, the two Oliver Stone Planet of the Ape movies from the 90s. You had one where it was Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to play the human and another where George Clooney was. I don't know, 90s Oliver Stone? I could have seen done something good with the Planet of the Apes remake. As much as I'm against remakes, I'm curious about both of those, aren't you? problem here again lies in, uh, and I know the novel's very different, but that original film is so good. Uh, I have not yet seen any of these new ones, by the way. So I've heard that they're They're halfway decent. Yeah, I've heard heard mixed, but when my friend says the second one's pretty good and they're getting better, I don't know. I've never seen them. I have no interest in seeing them, and that's the problem with asking me this question, I think. I really do feel that from this type of material, we've gotten one of the best stories we could. And that's, that's all Rod I'm Serling saying. wrote it. Yeah, well, it, it's Rod Serling. You had the right cast at the right time. It's just one of those stories. It's so ridiculous. It needs to be removed from reality. And it seems like with every adaption, they try to put reality into it. And that's the problem. People talk about, oh, when you see Roddy McDowell's makeup and the makeup on those actors, that it doesn't look like a real... Well, guess what? It's not real. To me, that's sort of what makes it work. If you understand what I'm talking about, being just slightly removed from reality makes it work better. And if you try to push it into reality, that's what makes it lame. And that's the best way I can say it. It's like, if you look at Tim Burton's version, there are moments that are kind of good moments, little pieces here and there. I just think it's already been done best it can be. And that's all I can say. Now, not modern Tim Burton, not 2000s Tim Burton. This was early 90s, 94, 95, Ed Wood era Tim Burton. He... he had the rights for a while he was going to remake santa claus conquers the martians and plan nine from outer space i don't know i think early 90s tim burton could have made some interesting plan nine and santa claus conquers the martians remakes don't you yes now that again removed from reality that could have been fun uh his style in the early 90s really would have fit that kind of goofy 50s style that Especially if he didn't go for an overtly jokey sense, because we we got a sense in Ed Wood of like what he would do with Plan 9. The scenes of Plan 9 from Outer Space in the Ed Wood movie are played both straight and yet oddly restrained. Like like, like when Tor's horrible acting, it's actually better by George the Animal Steel than the actual Tor Johnson's acting. Well, yeah, Ed Wood's its own animal. Um, because obviously they took the the myth of the making of Plan 9, not the reality of the making of Plan 9. And it's fun. It's it's a lot of fun. What Tim Burton would have done with a real Plan 9 from Outer Space, I don't know. If you look at something like Mars Attacks, which is not one of my favorite movies of his, but you that's can actually see... What he, th- th- that's actually what he did when Plan 9 wouldn't get greenlit. He did Mars Attacks instead. Stylistically... I could see along the same line. Yes, you know? that's what I mean. That you can feel that same, the 1950s aesthetic. If you're just talking the spaceships, the aliens, not the hideous 
script, okay? We're not talking about the characters and that. We're talking about the goofiness of it, the jokes involving the aliens and cows. And I, if, if that Ed Wood would have made it, yes. Today's Ed Wood, uh, sorry, I just said Tim Ed Burton. Wood. Tim Burton. If Tim, hey, they're the same guy. If Tim Burton today did that, no, I, I think you would end up with a much more cynical movie. I don't think it would work. Well, speaking of cynical, and I don't know if this is necessarily that, but okay, we're, we're getting that new monsters cinematic universe where they're rebooting the mummy and Dracula and everything, and they're all going to be interconnected with, uh, Russell Crowe playing Dr. Jekyll in all the movies and things like that. We're getting that now. Suck. They tried this in the early nineties and it didn't really work. They tried this again and again. At one point, John Carpenter in, I think it was 1992 or 1993, John Carpenter was going to write and direct a Creature from the Black Lagoon remake. And I've not read the script of this. I can't find the script. But Fangoria did a big rewrite on or a, a big article on it at the time. And they said it was super dark, insanely violent. The creature was was blatantly raping the heroine in this. And it was basically, I think it was Michael Gingold that wrote the article. He said if they would have adapt, if John Carpenter would have been allowed to adapt this movie as his script, it would have been an NC-17. And that seemed to be, because they also, this is before, this is right, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula's out, and this is before the Robert De Niro, Frankenstein, they were trying to get another Wolfman out there. The wolf with uh, Jack Nicholson doesn't really count. That wasn't a Wolfman. Right. And they had George Romero doing The Mummy. They seem to have said, which is so different from now, we're going to go hard R rebooting all of the Universal Monsters. None of them really came about, but I don't know. I kind of like that more than than this current PG-13 CGI thing. And that's saying I like the 1999 Brendan Fraser Mummy remake. We'll never, in at least probably not in our lifetime, here comes Mr. Cynical, uh, we're probably never going to see this done right. We'll, we'll, I don't see it happening. Don't have the right people at the helm of these studios. When you listen to these stories over and over about how these producers, you know, the Sony uh, hack is so revealing. We could just say Sony, Sony, Sony. This is what's going on throughout all of Hollywood. The way they think. They're, Sony is a symptom. They're, they're, they're just a symptom of what's going on on the larger scale. We're not going to see what we long to see because these people are not passionate about these characters. They're not passionate about storytelling. They either have agendas, which we keep seeing and hearing about just ad nauseum. Their only concern is how can we make a cinematic universe, cinematic universe, cinematic. I'm getting sick of that term. I really am. I know I just used it earlier. I was just saying in in reference to Fletch, I was like saying in an era when they're so obsessed with it, Fletch would work. Okay. In fact, I want to bring up another book here in a minute uh, about this too. But we're not going to see it done because they're worried about everything other than telling a good story and doing the characters that we love. They don't have to be identical. Like you said, you really like the mummy, the from that era. I and I loved Arnold Vosloo. I thought he was fantastic. He's an actor that I would put on a list of underrated actors. Personally, I think he's fantastic. I didn't like that movie as much as a lot of people, but it's fun. I just don't see it working. Not what we really want. We're definitely not going to get the R-rated. You've seen the mummy trailer. You're looking at this going. This is the mummy. But okay, then let me ask you this: Do you think 
let's just talk about John Carpenter's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh-huh. Would that have worked as a, as a hard R, hyper violent, rapey movie in the early 90s? Do you think people would have looked at that as sort of a desecration of Jack Arnold's original or a very cynical, this is what the 1990s are? I'm not saying like the idea of doing a hard R horror anything wouldn't work. But when you put the word rape into anything, to me, it takes the joy out of it. I, I kind of got the idea that he saw Roger Corman's Humanoids from the Deep and yep. said, Let, let's do that, but with the creature from the Black Lagoon. It, it won't work that way. The rape takes the fun out of everything. And I know I, I'm what I meant by this statement, I'm sorry, though, <laughs> rape takes the fun out of everything. What I'm talking about is in storytelling. It takes any fun that you're ha- This is the creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay, that title alone says monster movie. It should be fun on some... I'm not saying, like, fun isn't it can't be scary or intense or make you nervous. I'm talking about just that safe adrenaline rush we've heard many horror filmmakers talk about. The minute you put rape in there, that fun is gone. Because neither men or women want that on the screen. Maybe the fetishists that are into that Japanese crap. The majority of your, you're not going to have that in the cinemas of a of a general public. It's not going to work. But, you know, even the violence was amped up. Because, like, according to the Fangoria article, remember how in the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, he would take those big clawy hands of his, put them on, a, you know, the side of a guy's head and just kind of, you know, kind of snap the guy's neck and throw the body away? Yeah. Carpenter had him just tearing people's heads right out. There was a, a snippet from the script where the spinal column was dangling and the creature was, you know, using that to beat another guy with. And it just, it seemed like it was so over-the-top violent, it almost seemed like again this is just an impression that carpenter was like i'm gonna go as over the top with gore as possible and i don't know if that's the right move even for the 90s yeah first of all when you said that about the gore again humanoids of the deep they got people's faces get ripped off in that movie no i don't think it would work it just doesn't again it doesn't sound like fun and i you know me i'm not a I'm not offended by gore. And you're a Carpenter fan, uh, too. I'm a gargantuan Carpenter fan. So believe me, when I say these things, I'm not attacking John Carpenter. He's one of my favorite directors of all time. Anybody, any director, any writer, anyone can make the wrong decision. You can go in the wrong direction. And to me, that's exactly what this sounds like. It just sounds like he... Carpenter is sort of famous slash infamous for that time period. He was angry. Nothing was working out. Even his picture deal that he made with Alive Films ended up not really working out. We got some good stuff out of it, but it didn't really work out. And he was very bitter, very angry. And you know what? This sounds like this project came out of that John Carpenter. Well, and then you have the Romero Mummy, which he said was a straight-up hard-R horror film. From Romero... I don't know. I I can see Romero having pulled off a decent mummy script. Again, who knows? Uh, It depends on which Romero. It depends on the script. The mummy is one of those stories. It's it's not as accessible as the Wolfman. I would say Wolfman and Dracula are two of the most accessible monsters we have. And the only reason I'm not including Frankenstein is Frankenstein's kind of a limited story. You know, you build Frankenstein and he lumbers around. It's it's a little limited. Whereas those other two characters, you can do more with them. You can take them places. You can change their environment. That's why they've been done so many times in different ways. Or werewolves in general. Werewolves and vampires is what I'm referring to. You could do a lot with those two types of characters. A mummy, it, it's not that you're limited. It's just you have to tell the right story. And then the mummy mythos, of course, is generally about someone who is obsessed with a particular woman and going after her. It's a little trickier. It's a little tr- I, I think if you had Romero's uh, satire in there, 
perhaps if you did, oh, Romero talking of maybe a commentary on modern love and using the mummy as that catalyst, that could be fun. That could be fun, but I don't know what we would have had. I really don't. It's, it's, we're speculating. It's just too hard to guess. To continue with something we talked about earlier, the idea of adapting modern day is always an issue. It's constantly an issue. And a series of novels I loved growing up, don't, I'd love to see it done, but I, I, again, I don't think we ever will are the Destroyer novels. The ones, the original ones by Warren uh, Murphy and uh, Richard uh, Sapir. The original Destroyer became a movie called Remo Williams, Fred Ward, Joel Gray, perfectly cast, in my opinion, at that the time. The Adventure period. Begins. The Adventure Begins. However, as much as I love the movie for what it is, it's not really the Destroyer. It has, it's, it's very true to it in many respects. The Chun Remo relationship is right out of the books. Okay, they got that right. And quite frankly, the best thing in all those books is the relationship between Remo and Chun. That's the best part of those novels. They got that right. That's why casting those actors was perfect. They had a chemistry between them. They worked. The rest of it, though, eh, they kept the book somewhat intact, but the villain's different. Uh, the books are sleazier. They're closer to, like, if you've read James Bond novels, James Bond novels are very sleazy, and the Destroyer novels are kind of like that. Remo is a, he's a killer, and he kills people. Bad people, admittedly, but he does it in very, very violent ways. Hell, hell they tried to turn that into a TV series. Oh! In the, in the uh, late 80s. Do you remember the I Remo Williams it. TV movie? A pilot. It was a pilot. It was a 30-minute pilot. It was awful. Yeah, th- th- that was pretty, and I, I haven't seen The Adventure Begins in 25 years, but I remember that pilot being just terrible. Oh, the, the, the pilot is, it's unwatchable. It's so bad, whereas the, the books were more, the books were written with their tongue firmly in their cheek, did take them with a grain of salt, so there, cause the joke was, there's a mystical for everything, like, oh, this is from the Orient, so you could do this, and you could do that, and it was tongue in cheek. And it was meant to be because that's, again, the best part is Chun and Remo. Chun messes with Remo constantly. And that's what's so great about the books. But you're not going to see those adapted today. You're just not. They are so unpolitically correct. They're violent. They basically are glorifying an assassin. You know, because Bond, you can make be heroic. Even though Bond is an assassin, he can still do other things. Remo was generally sent to kill someone. Yes, they were drug dealers and rapists and horrible people, but it was still sleazy. And Remo sleeps with every chick he meets. I mean, you think Bond was horny. Remo is is that times, well, he, he goes to 11. What about a movie sequel that never happened and even... It just sounds so insane you want to see it. Like like Crow 2034, An Age of Gods and Monsters from Rob Zombie. The one where it takes place in a post-apocalyptic future filled with mutants and, and a crow as a a crow-infused dead person as a bounty hunter. You kind of go, you know what? Probably wouldn't be a good movie, but I really wanted to see that movie. I would have loved to have seen that script done by a different director. Well, let's end on this one. The one that has a whole documentary made about this version that never got made, and that would be Superman Lives, the Tim Burton, Kevin Smith movie. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know it was originally written for Ben Affleck, and then Nicolas Cage got the part, and then everyone freaked out over the costume, which was only a quick little moment in the movie. But after watching the documentary, 
I really think Superman Lives would have been a god-awful Superman movie. But I think it also would have been a tremendously fun, batshit insane, over-the-top fun movie. Or, or along those same lines, Jadorowski's Dune. Probably a terrible Dune movie, but it probably would have been one of the best sci-fi movies of the f***ing 70s. Well, in, in the, let's start with the Superman. When I first heard of Superman Lives, like everybody, we saw that the documentary covers this a lot. And it's a really good documentary. And how what we were given was not all the truth. And once you know the whole story, it's like, oh, this makes a lot more sense. It's still insane. Uh, there's still it's really still... dumb ideas in there. Oh, yes. Without you know, question. even in context, they're dumb ideas. But I think it would have been a tremendously fun, very stupid, very poor Superman movie, but probably a really fun mid-90s movie. I think it would have been, from what we've seen production-wise, I think it would have been colorful, weird, different, and who knows, maybe... In context, it might have even worked in a weird sort of way, but there's no doubt it would have been absolutely nuts. It would have just been nuts. It would have either been the kind of nuts that just somehow works, or the riff tracks would have come out the next day. <laughs> Brainiac <laughs> fighting polar bears, a gay robot assistant. A robot assistant. <laughs> you gotta love that one. It's, I do AC and DC. It, 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 would have been fun, but let me just say, I, I, I think I've said this before about Jodorowsky's Dune. I hate everything about every idea he had. I saw the documentary. I was bored out of my mind through most of it. I loved uh, it. I, I loved his it. ideas were so horribly miscalculated. They oh, would have been a terrible. great film. Yeah, it's one thing to speculate. And this is why the documentary bores me. Is like for 15 minutes, I was smiling. Everything after that, I was like, this is the same thing over and over and over. And it's like, this could have been, and this, I mean, at least with the Superman Lives, there were photos, there were scripts, there were other, you know what I mean? There were people involved. There was a lot to talk about. That Dune was just this speculation in people's heads, and that's all you've got. And nothing said intrigued me in the slightest. I'm sorry. It didn't. I thought it sounded terrible. It sounded like a guy, you know, who, who was tripping out <laughs> when he was writing. And that's what the movie would have looked like. Maybe you're right. Maybe it would have been like a Barbarella or a Zardoz or something just so visually, you know, loony that you just sit there and stare in disbelief. It just sounds bad to me. And I might be the only I, one. I, I disagree, but that's fine. That's fine. A lot of people, and you know what? I hear a lot of people say what you said. I just, I got the opposite reaction when I watched the documentary, and I just sat there, and all I could think of was, thank goodness this never happened. That's all I could think the whole time. What about, with Star Wars being so popular, what about the never-made Splinter of the Mind's Eye? Before Star Wars came out, George Lucas wasn't sure if it was going to be a hit or not, and since he still owned the characters and all the concepts, he had a script commissioned that he could make on about a million-dollar budget, no space battles, limited cast, limited sets, because he still wanted to make a sequel to Star Wars, even if it flopped, he'd just take it and make it like, you know, an independent drive-in movie. And it was called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. There was no Han Solo. It's Luke and Leia trapped on on a planet that would be arguably kind of like Dagobah. 
like a swamp, like a swamp forest planet with a bunch of miners, and then they're being stalked by Darth Vader. Like I said, no space battles, no Han, because you know Harrison Ford didn't want to come back, and it would be a real down and dirty, low budget, million dollar film. Now, technically, we've seen this in, it was, that script was released as a comic book, and it was released as a full novelization. Based on those, kind of am curious to see what, like, a 1978 movie of Splinter of the Mind's Eye would be, aren't you? You're gonna hate me. No. <laughs> No. Okay. It would take have out every take t- take out everything you know about Star Wars now. I know. Just what you're take saying. take this I in a, in a 1978 context. No, no, it's not good. And people say I'm cynical. It's okay. Look, I'm not saying it's the worst. Okay. It just it is exactly what it seems to be. It's a low budget idea. You know, it's Southern comfort. I called it a backup sequel. Anytime we deal with speculation, although in this case we do have an actual product, though. I don't think it's a particularly good story. It's okay. It would have been the end of the franchise, I think, for sure. I also want to point out that that sequel idea, the whole Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was completely okayed by George Lucas, proves he did not have these things written out. Luke and Leia were never meant to be brother and sister, because they almost sleep together in this thing, and there's lots of sexual tension moments. His whole thing, how they were always meant to be brother and sister, is bullshit. And Splinter of the Mind's Eye proves that even more than Empire does, with them, with the sexual tension and that. Except in the 70s, he claimed he had all three movies completely and utterly planned out, and it's like, you're full of shit. Unless he meant original story that he had planned out. If that's what he meant, then yes, he did have this kind of big notebook, but it wasn't fully written out. That part would be a lie. It wasn't like he had these screenplays written out. If you've ever, I don't know if anybody here has ever read the actual screenplay for the original Star Wars. Oh, it is horrible. It's horrific. And it, of course, has that infamous line from Harrison Ford said, George, you can type this shit, but you can't say it. That's a direct quote. That's the truth. It's awful. Alec Guinness and Harrison, and and they were just chopping pages out of this thing. I have a feeling Star Wars was saved by Gary Kurtz. I actually think it was saved by Alec Guinness, if you want my opinion. Uh, Maybe both him and Gary Kurtz, because Gary Kurtz... I think he was the pragmatist. I think he was the realist. And I think he reeled in Lucas, which is why when you get to Return of the Jedi, what seems a little way farther off from the series we were getting. The Empire being beaten by space teddy bears? Yeah, it's it's like, okay, it's not awful. It definitely isn't awful. But you could see it's further off into dreamland than the first two. And I think Gary was, was the was the no man, and George wanted a yes man, which he definitely got. Gary reeled it in, but I think for Star Wars, it was Alec Guinness. Every story I've ever heard, Alex was the one that was gently patting George on the back, you know, talking to him, uh, saying, you know, you have to talk to actors like this. You can't just do that, and they can't speak this. And it seems to me as if when it came to dialogue, when it came to character interaction, those things came from Alex. Probably Gary was more the production side of it, but I think Alex is why we have these characters the way we do. I really do. But you got to remember, as someone who's read the screenplay the same as I have, for every good idea he had in that, there were two bad ideas. Well, it was unreadable. Forget any good idea. It was unreadable. When I heard that story that everyone passed on this script, like all the other studios, I was asked for years, well, why? Well, why? Then I read it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is awful. This is this is 
awful. And to this day, I have to ask the question, why did 20th Century Fox say yes? Well, on that note, we're going to wrap up. Fred, where can people find you bitching about movies that never got made? (laughs) Pining for your novels to be adapted properly. Pining for my lost childhood. You can still find me at Movie Apocalypse on Facebook. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.